Date with a Debut is a Words and Nerds and Breathe Art podcast co-production, recorded on a Wagbacool country. And I pay my respects to all elders past and present, and extend that to any First Nations people tuning in. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. On with the show. It's really a story about first love and second chances, and specifically about a second chance that's really thrust upon you by a twist of fate. Hello, my name is Nick Wasilia, former host of podcast Tell Me What to Read, author of When Men Cry, and today we are continuing our series with words and nerds shining a light on debut novelists and their journey to publication. If you are looking for a new book to devour, this is the place to be. You looking for writing inspiration, this is the place to be. This is a date with a debut because nothing hits you like a first impression. Next up in this series, I'm joined by Nina Wan, former journalist and editor of the Australian Financial Review, and her novel The Albatross was shortlisted for the 2022 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript, but soon it will be published. It will be out in the world on April 26th through Pan Macmillan Australia. Nina, welcome to the podcast. Hello. I'm so glad to meet you, Nick, and to be talking about my novel The Albatross. You're very, very welcome. Love having you here. And in typical fun date fashion, let's Start off by telling us a bit about yourself. First of all, you know, being a journalist, but also how you came to start your writing journey. I, I've always wanted to write, actually, from a very young age. But I had a very pragmatic, practical type of father who believed that you needed to sort of have a proper career and be able to put food on the table before you can sort of do that kind of creative exercise. So I actually went and studied commerce law at uni and worked a little bit in investment banking and then on to financial journalism at the Australian Financial Review. Right now, I actually work as an advisor in um, in the government. Uh, so I suppose writing's always been something that's kind of on the back of my mind, but I really didn't properly sit down and try to focus on that till 2020 during lockdown. At the time, I had two kids that were home being homeschooled. I had my husband working from home. I was working from home myself. And I think the world was just getting a little bit chaotic, to be honest. And I needed to find that space of sanity for myself. And so I said, okay, well, I've always had this idea of writing the albatross. At the at the time it obviously wasn't called the albatross, but I just had sort of an inkling of an idea. Mm. And so I said, I'm just going to try and find little pockets of time throughout my day to just shut the door and be in my zone to try and see if I can write this book. It took me about a year, all of that year, to write the first draft, which of course was only just the start of it. You sort of think, oh, by the end of that <laughs> last word that you type, you just go, oh, hooray, it's done. But actually... Once that was done, then began a few very long months of revising <laughs> and redrafting and rethinking about the characters and so on. You know, it really was writing for five minutes, ten minutes here and there, and also very late at night when everybody else is asleep and you've got finally some peace to yourself. Mm. So very erratic way of writing, but... I got there in the end. <laughs> <laughs> that that sounds like a, an amazing feat, first of all, to the fact that you've had to find time in terms of having 
the entire family at home, kids who need your attention, and you still manage to find time to squeeze every uh, five or ten minutes every every so often to keep that momentum going and to keep that going. So tip of the hat to you. That's a that's a, a feat in itself. So let's so let's talk about this book. Let's talk about the albatross. Give me your give me your one minute pitch. What's it about? In a nutshell, the albatross is about a woman called Primrose Lee, who at the age of 36 finds herself in a marriage that is really teetering on the edge. Mm. And at the same time, by coincidence, the boy that she loved 20 years ago has moved into the big house across the street. And so it's really a story about first love and second chances and specifically about a second chance that's really thrust upon you by a twist of fate. Long buried feelings kind of coming to the surface and whether they actually really still mean anything in the light of the present. And of course, in the midst of all that, she stumbles across a swampy little rundown suburban golf course and begins to do this rather absurd thing of playing golf. (laughs) Uh, You know, and through this kind of quaint activity, which she actually proves to be very bad at, um, (laughs) she manages to somehow forge a path towards understanding what happened to her in the past and where she wants to go that's a great summary you've you've nailed it pretty damn well so uh it's it's a great book i i love how you kind of the description first and foremost of this book just this was my very first impression about first love second chances and the most elusive shot in golf which I just was like, well, one of those things is not like the other. Um, but I love that you <laughs> refer to the title of this, you know, the eponymous albatross as one of the most difficult shots in golf. And I like that you, you you talk about a lot of things here. There's not just the romance side of things, but also kind of that that Prim finds mindfulness in this activity that she traditionally hasn't done. And we'll get to Primrose and Peter and the family dynamic in a minute. But first of all, I just want to ask you about the fact, again, that you frame a lot of this story around the Whistles Public Golf Course um, oh. and the game of golf itself, because it just seemed, it just, when I first saw it and imagined it, I was like, I had to kind of double take back a yeah. little bit. Are you a big golfer yourself, first and foremost? And did you come up with this story while playing golf? Or how did it, why did it seem right to frame this particular story and these characters around this particular sport? Okay, so golf was really the beginning of the idea for this book. Several years ago, I found myself in the middle of a swampy little suburban golf course. Uh, It was called the Elstonwick Public Golf Course, which no longer exists anymore. It was sort of in the last days of um, its existence, actually, when I got there. And I was there because I found myself in a particularly turbulent point in my life. Mm. I had a husband who was really battling um, with cancer. I had young children and I was trying very hard to sort of hold myself together. And one day my husband kind of said, why don't you take up golf <laughs> as a way of, I suppose, kind of try and getting yourself out of you this know, dynamic this mm. hole that you're in. Mm. Uh, it, the idea was absurd, but I mean, everything that was happening to me at the time was absurd so I thought well it can't hurt so I went down to the old Elstonwick golf course and 
I actually, to my own surprise, found it to be an extremely meditative and actually a very medicinal experience. The first rule in the golf book is to play the course as you find it and to play the ball as it lies. And so actually it's really a lesson in acceptance, in sort of accepting the environment in which you find yourself and trying to do your best with those elements that are already there for you. Uh, it's about kind of almost like think saying, okay, I, there's no way I can control the direction of the wind, the way the grass is cut on that particular day, the moisture in the ground, a little twig that's lying in the grass. All of those things are going to affect how you play and mm. you're just going to have to deal with that. And at some point during those weeks that I was playing golf there, <laughs> Uh, it became a bit of a broader realisation, which is that a lot of the things that were happening in my life were beyond my control. And it's better to, I suppose, in a way, accept them and carry the weight of them on your shoulders and just move on. And so so I found that to be, yeah, a very strangely kind of enlightening and philosophical experience, which I never actually expected to have on a, a golf course. But, but it just so happened that, that that was what happened. And because I was playing during the wintertime, it rained a lot, being a typical <laughs> Melbourne winter. And so I, I used to play in the rain and, um, and that kind of became the opening <laughs> scene of the book, which is of Primrose you know, just doing this absurd thing of getting a golf club and going out into the storm and having a hit. <laughs> this trans, this whole feeling uh, that you, you touched on, this is the reason why I wanted to ask this, it's translated to the book and made me look at golf in ways that I previously, because yeah. I'm not familiar with golf at all. Mm. So just mm. the, the idea of it's a great uh, mindfulness and present moment exercise that just that fitted so naturally and it's made me now look at, at you know previous golf you know snippets or whatever that I would might have caught in whenever coming across you know online and suddenly going now I kind of see an extra dimension to this how the how this this whole thing works and it's actually I can now see why it would be a very meditative uh, space mm. to be in and a, and a great reset if you are going through particularly troubled mm. times. You, you, you crafted that extremely well in this book and it, and it felt like a character in its own way a little bit, this place that Prim, that Prim could escape to throughout the book. Absolutely. I mean, prior to going onto that golf course, I mean, my impression of golf was really kind of like Tiger Woods, you know, that, that sort <laughs> of thing. Um, but actually, if you go to uh, your local public golf course on an ordinary weekday, what you will find is all sorts of different people, you know, and there are a lot of people that play by themselves. So it's kind of like it becomes a solitary exercise where, you know, you're not really playing against anyone. You're just really playing against yourself and your, your own mental state, I suppose. And it's just, it's just, it's a game that is deceptively difficult. I mean, it seems easy enough to get a small ball into a hole over there. But it's actually so, so difficult because there are so many variables in the environment in which you uh, are playing that you that you can't control. 
golfers are very hopeful people. They're very optimistic. You put the most pessimistic person on a golf course, they become an optimist. They think they can do it. You know, so there's this sort of like constant sort of exercise of just trying to get there. The great British golfer Ted Ray once said, it took me 40 years to realise that I can't play golf. And, <laughs> and, and, and that that's a mental process that goes through every golfer's head that they, they think they, they should be able to do this. But, you know, but it's just so difficult. And I think it's the difficulty of it that sort of keeps people <laughs> coming back again, again and again. Absolutely, and it just as a, as a place as a, as a place of escape, and I love that Primrose kind of gravitates this because she's in such an interesting place in this story. You, you know, you realised her very very well on the page in a likewise in a like what in a way that you go, okay, well I can see why out of you know that she would gravitate towards this particular space. She's in her mid thirties, you know. This dynamic in her marriage is really it's all over the place, and you know there is also a clock. Uh, the clock of you know her brother-in-law coming as mm-hmm. well uh, that kind of just looms over a, a, a decent portion of the story and then of course you've got Peter uh, this flame who this old flame who just happened to to move across the street talk about tempting um, so how on <laughs> earth did all of these these characters and this dynamic come into your life well actually um, Peter did not fully come into existence until I had I was about 13 chapters into writing the book and I suddenly sort of hit a a wall I suppose and I just thought I don't know how to kind of push this story forward and and actually it was at that point that Peter came to live across the street and Peter became the boy that she loved 20 years ago, it was a way of creating romantic tension, a, a way of sort of pushing the story forward. So there was a major kind of rewrite actually at the point of getting to chapter 13 and all of a sudden having to go back and put Peter in there. <laughs> but then I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, she was sort of, there was this longing that was transmitting, you know, between the two houses and so that that's what that's what happened. And you know, I, I really love Peter as a as a character. You know, he's sort of like uh, I think the way that Asian male characters are portrayed has been somewhat problematic in that it's very stereotypical and it's always very one dimensional. And so I really wanted to break that mold, and I wanted to make Peter some sort of Asian Mr. Darcy. You know, like, and that's what I tried very hard to do. Um, to create this romantic, strong male Asian romantic character. And, you know, there's one particular scene where, you know, Peter kind of, he's sort of swimming in the ocean and it's like, you know, he emerges from the water and uh, Proper Darcy vibes. strip off his wetsuit. Now, um, was, that, <laughs> was that scene completely necessary? Probably not. But, um, but I had great fun writing it. And I thought, you know, it, it's just beautiful. <laughs> it was you necessary. Know? It was necessary. Yeah, I, I yeah. like people will say gratuitous that I'm like, find joy in books, please. Because yes. this, this was totally worth it. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I am, um, I, I have a son. So, you know, I sort of like him to sort of grow up to think, well, you know, I can be that kind of character that I'm not you know, I don't have to be kind of the, the nerdy kid who's good at maths or whatever I can be. <laughs> so I, I think that was sort of what I was trying to achieve is just 
to, to really create a male Asian character that is a little bit different to how they're normally portrayed. Absolutely. You, well, you do succeed because, yeah, he's he's fantastic. Peter is yeah. really, really great. And I can, uh, you can, and you really get Prim's, Primrose's perspective on it beautifully. You realise it really nice, this kind of dynamic. And also, again, all of the, the things that make her feel the way she is feeling herself, you you weave it together really, really nicely. And, you know, as as I alluded to earlier, I mean, I'm going to try and keep this as vague as possible because, uh, for, you know, for spoiler reasons, because I want people to go and buy this, this amazing book. You know, Prim is very much caught in this particular space and you've, you're in that space in your in marriage where you've passed the lovey-dovey side of things and it becomes the, the, the work section, the section where it's the day-to-day. And you contrast that really nicely with those, you know, tried and true motifs. Again, I love, again, that you that you reference Mr. Mr. Darcy, where all of those great motifs come from of old fa- uh, old flames and love and desire contrasting with family obligation, which uh, it just plays my heart like a fiddle. Uh, and I love and I love it so much. Why did this particular space of of love and and marriage and the contrasting of it appeal to you as a dynamic to explore in this story? Because again, you know, it's been explored a lot, but there was something about the way that you did it in this particular book in a way that was just, it felt new, it felt fresh. And it was, it was something that I, all the things that were there were stuff that I loved. I, I think that once you've been married a certain number of years and you sort of lived life a little bit, there's a lot of richness that, you know, you, you gain from that that you think will translate really well onto the page. And so I, I suppose that's sort of what, like, what I wanted to explore was that kind of complexity, I suppose, of, like you say, the that a marriage, so once you pass that kind of honeymoon phase and once you've had a bit of trauma thrown in through the husband's illness and so on, it becomes extremely complicated. But it's that complication that kind of attracts people, you know, it makes the story more interesting. When I first started writing this book, I, you know, I thought that it was going to be a book about the journey of these two people in a marriage, somehow that they would come out of this illness and kind of rediscover their love for each other and it's a story about a marriage being kind of mended, you know, which is kind of like a lovely, I think, idea to explore. But but somehow in my in the process of writing, it just went in a different direction. And, you know, and it didn't feel like it would necessarily work out for Primrose and her husband. You know, it, like it just felt like their lives were a little bit more complicated than that. And it was just sort of my way of exploring the complexities of your own internal feelings and how one person can maybe love two people and it can be one can be caught in a very difficult situation given the circumstances that surround her. I want to, I, I really wish we could continue to talk about this book, but I really also want to ask you about your journey to publication as well, because uh, as as we mentioned at the, at the top of the podcast, you, you this book was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript. Congratulations, by the way. I think that speaks volumes about Thank this you. book. What was that journey to publication like? You write this book, you have your first draft, 
you've obviously gone through a very vigorous editing process. What happened next? So what happened next was that I think I was kind of lucky in a way because it didn't it didn't actually take me a very long time to find a, a path to publication because of the because of the shortlist because of the prize. Basically, I sort of started testing the waters with, you know, just only a handful of people, you know, a few agents and um, so on. And and then someone that I know said, well, why don't you also at the same time just put it into this, uh, submit it to this BPLA award for an unpublished manuscript? And so I said, okay, well, why don't we, why don't I do that? It was literally maybe like two days before the deadline for the submissions. So the timing was there. And so I sent it in and I, I didn't really hear back and I didn't really kind of expect to hear back, I suppose. Um, then a few months down the track, someone called from the Wheeler Centre and said, oh, you got shortlisted. Uh, and I I didn't quite appreciate how much attention it would get through the shortlisting, actually. But when the shortlist got announced, there were several people that contacted me and said, you know, can I read the manuscript? I, so I actually found a publisher through that very quickly. The whole thing kind of got, kind of caught me by surprise, actually, how quickly the book found a home, which was lovely, but it just, it didn't really happen the way I thought it would happen. Um, I thought that there would be, I suppose, a lot more kind of me reaching out to publishers and, <laughs> you know, getting a lot more rejections and so on. Uh, so in a way, it was nice to have avoided avoided that. But I don't want to make it sound like it was just like a very easy and short journey to publication either because, you know, prior to that, when I was 17, for example, I wrote a manuscript which sort of never really went anywhere. But so I guess what I'm saying is that it still took what feels like a lifetime to get there. It's just that with this particular manuscript, the albatross, the, the process was not as long and arduous as I thought. It does yeah. sound like an absolute dream run. I mean, if you if you if you get, you know, often the the, the stories of, of getting published and going out to publishers and seeing how you go, I mean, it's 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 uh, it is a, a cliche, but it is also true because it is it's tough to get published. It's fantastic yeah. that that you were able to to land that that shortlisting would that be what you know in terms of that whole process would that be kind of your key advice for kind of uh first-time authors for example who are kind of learning and trying to to put their own manuscript manuscript into into existence yeah so i i mean i would say that because you only really have one shot with each of the people that you will send the manuscript to that you kind of have to put your best foot forward in the sense that don't don't just send it out when you've typed that last word in your first draft you've got to kind of let it sit for a while go back to it because you will find holes and you will find things that you want to change and so just it's only when you're sort of kind of comfortable with it and you think that it's sort of the best that you can do at that particular time that you should start to air it you know mm. maybe not so much just flood every publisher and every agent maybe test a few because they might come back and say I'm sorry it's not right for me but they might give you just a little nugget of something that triggers something in you and go oh maybe I should go back and just change just work on it a little bit more mm. so it's a kind of like a cumulative progressive um, process and also definitely you know if there is an award or something um, definitely have a go 
But so I would say keep your expectations in check, but also at the same time, you just have to kind of blindly try for it too. (laughs) (laughs) Be realistic, but optimistic. I like it. Yeah, exactly. So what's next for you? Is there another book on the horizon? Uh, Is this, will you write again? So I'm actually working on a second book, but it's at, it's at a very early stage. I've only got about three chapters or something like that. I think it will be another love story because I'm actually, I, I think I'm actually incapable of writing anything other than love stories. <laughs> my husband, my husband, um, I think was mildly disappointed that I didn't go into sort of the science fiction genre or something. <laughs> but um, I think, uh, you know, emotionally I'm just more triggered by themes around love and so on. Um, it's very early days, so it's sort of very hard to say where it's even going. I'm one of those people that really I just sort of start typing <laughs> and see it. where it takes me. Yeah, so I don't plan anything out really, and which is why Peter, you know, in The Albatross only appeared once I got to chapter 13, then I had to go back because I just didn't, I just don't plan. I, I think it's just the way I work best. And mm. I, I guess uh, different people will work differently, but um, yeah, so we'll see, we'll see. And that's, you know, we'll see where it takes me, but that's the, the exciting thing is sort of starting to write something and actually not knowing. We're at the part of the podcast where we finish with a rapid fire question section. So I'll, I'll throw some quick questions at you. No pressure at all. <laughs> Do you have a favourite book that you've read in the last 12 months? This is pretty shameful, but I actually haven't had time to read anything over the last 12 months. But I um, I started reading a little bit of Joan Didion uh, because, you know, I can sort of read one article and that's sort of like that's done, you know, like I, I don't have to sort of necessarily need to keep going to fin- to see what happens at the end of the novel sort of thing. Mm. Um, so I really love, I suppose, just all her journalistic writing. But, uh, yeah, so that that's, pro- that's probably what, what I would say. I mean, if, if, if you were to ask me if I had a favourite book of all time, it would probably have to be Disgrace by J.M. Kutzea. That's probably... Uh, an all-time favourite of mine. I love it. And and to be honest, for the record, like I'm in a similar position when I'm writing or whatever, I just I want to try and separate myself from from, from yeah. reading other books. Of course, everything sometimes seeps in, but uh, no, I vibe. Which do you prefer, using the driver, the iron, or just a good old-fashioned putter? Uh, I love the putter because, you know, it, it, that's where the precision comes in. You know, that's where you need to really think about a, a driver sometimes you can just whack it and if you happen to be on the golf course that has a very wide fairway you know it can't go that wrong but uh, the putter is the final shot and um and it's so difficult and so difficult to master so yeah so I would say probably the putter. <laughs> I love it that's good do you have a favorite word a favorite word like one particular uh, word even like you were writing it and you're like I, I just love putting yeah. this word in a word that my kids only recently taught me is bruh, which is B-R-U-H. And uh, I love it because it's an all-purpose word, right? Like it doesn't actually mean seem to mean anything at all, but you can use it in any situation. It's like, oh, you know, you've got to put that down. It's time for dinner. And they'll go, bruh, 
<laughs> you know, and or you can say, oh, well, we're going, we're going to McDonald's for dinner, and they go, Bruh! like it's <laughs> like a thing of excitement. So, so I love that word. I'm constantly learning fabulous words from my from my kids, but yeah, that that's probably my favorite for now. <laughs> I love it. And then last question: Have you actually ever scored an albatross on a golf course or witnessed one? No, no, I, I've never witnessed one and I've never scored one. I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe that Tiger Woods has never scored one either or that maybe he's only come close to scoring one but hasn't actually. So that doesn't, so that doesn't make me feel so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, hey, look, it, it, they are, it's as rare as they say. So, uh, you know, if you, if you had managed to pull that, that one off and say, yes, I have, I would have been like, well, dang, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Um, I could honestly chat to you all day, Nina, but unfortunately we have run out of time. So I'm going to simply finish off by saying thank you so much. You should be really proud of this book and it was a real pleasure to chat with you. Thank you, Nick. It was such a pleasure to have a chat with you too. And, you know, I could talk about the albatross all day, but yeah, maybe we'll have another opportunity sometime. I hope so. It would be really lovely. And for all of our listeners as well, uh, if this book appeals to you, go and get The Albatross. It's published by Pan Macmillan. And if you like the show, drop words and nerds a review. Let us know what you think and also who you'd like to hear from next.